You're seated. Father, we just want to bow our heads right now and in Jesus' name ask for your strength and ask for your Holy Spirit to just do a work in us. We want the words of our singing to be true and lived out in our lives to where we have a complete and full satisfaction in Christ and where we have you at work in our lives daily and we're sensitive to the leading of your spirit and we're sensitive to walking in obedience to your word. And so now as we reach for our Bibles and we study your word together, would you use this time in a special way? We thank you for our church. We thank you for those who are involved in ministries. We thank you for the work of grace you're doing in people's lives as we battle against sin, as we seek to have victory over temptation, as we learn to conquer the flesh, as we learn to have discernment about the world system around us that would bring us down. Father, would you just use this time to grow us and develop us and conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and in his name we preach. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18, uh, where we find, for introductory purposes this morning, a great story that Jesus told. It's Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Yes, we're going to Matthew 6 as we work our way through Matthew's Gospel and we're in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus taught about prayer in many different passages of Scripture. And in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, he tells a most remarkable story. And I want us to read it and kind of react to it as a foundation for our thinking as we move into Matthew chapter 6, where we have that very familiar teaching where the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer is given and the Lord teaches His disciples to pray. And uh, I just think that this story in Luke 18 is really remarkable. Now listen what he says. It says, and he told them a parable. Okay, he there is Jesus, okay? And he told them a parable to the effect that you ought always to pray and not lose heart. Anybody out there losing heart? Anybody out there feeling like your prayers bounce off the ceiling? I saw a bumper sticker twice in the same week on the back of the same truck a landscaping truck parked in a neighborhood not far from here. And the bumper sticker said, nothing fails like prayer. I wonder how many followers of Jesus Christ deep in your secret places of your heart think that way about your prayer life. If there's an area of my life that has gone unanswered and that essentially has failed, it's prayers. Does God answer prayer? How does this work? Well, here's the parable Jesus tells. For those who ought always to pray and to not lose heart or to faint or to grow weary. He said, Jesus said, verse 2, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find a church that is filled with faith, that is a praying church, that believes that God answers prayer? Now think about this story for just a minute. There's two key players. There's a widow, and you need to understand that in the context of this culture, if you're a widow, you're in a bad place. You don't have the framework of a governmental social security system, life insurance policies, um, other other um, uh, pieces of the puzzle that come together around you that in our culture today often provides quite well for those who lose their husbands or have needs. In the Bible time, if you were a widow, you usually were very poor. And if you were a widow who did not have adult children around you to help you or a support group around you of of, uh, relatives or believing people around you, you were really in a difficult place. And there's this judge. And we can tell by what Jesus says that he's kind of a crusty old guy. He's evidently a little burnout on his job. He's kind of filled up with people. He's uh, beyond compassion with people. And he's tired of trying to cure stupidity. He can't do it. So he just throws the book at you. He'd rather just, you know, see you squirm than come into his courtroom and have a fair hearing. And there's the two key players. And this widow knows that this man doesn't care about people and he doesn't fear God, but she's so weary with the problem that she's dealing with that she at least is going to go try to find justice and she doesn't get it. He either does not rule in her favor or he doesn't put her on the docket for that day and he refuses to hear her case and sends her on the way. And so she keeps coming back. Until finally she comes back to him so many times that he decides he had better take care of this, get it off of his to-do list, and he better rule in her favor and meet her needs or she will drive him out out of his mind. And so by her continual coming, he says, give her justice. It's really interesting where it says um, in the ESV in verse 5, it says, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. In the New King James, I think there it says um, that she weary me. I am so weary of hearing her case over and over that I will finally rule in her favor just to get her out of my courtroom. He throws open the window and hollers at the community, this woman is exonerated, take care of her, get her out of here. And Jesus points out that this crusty old judge does this. It's interesting that in the language of the grammar of the Greek, where the ESV translates it, lest she beat me down, or the King James uses the phrase, lest she weary me, that it literally means to be hit underneath the eye. She keeps punching me in the eye with this. I'm tired of it. Get her out of here. Now, one of the things that's interesting in this story is that we tend to allegorize it instead of realize that it's just a parable. So in an allegory, we're always looking for identity with the characters, right? We're going to be like this person and we're going to be or we're going to be like this situation we've experienced and we're putting it in. And so, of course, as we read this story, our first thought is, is that that we're Jesus teaches. I tell you that if this unjust judge will give justice to you, how much more your heavenly. So the judge must be the the character of God in this 
parable, right? This is God. And the widow represents us. And we haven't had our prayers answered. So if we will just keep grinding on God and punching Him under the eye, wearying Him, finally one day God will throw open the windows of heaven and scream out across the universe, Your prayer is answered and done. Stop bothering me. But what we need to understand is that can't be true. That's not true. It's not an allegory. Jesus Himself said it's a parable. Now, in a parable, you don't always match yourself up with the people. A parable is a story that Jesus tells that is supposed to be sort of along the lines of what we would think of in our culture as a riddle. That there's parts to it that you won't get if you just... You're supposed to just ponder this thing. You're supposed to mull it over and think it through when you're riding a lawnmower, when you're on your commute. You're thinking about this. And here's what should happen, I believe, in this story, is it should occur to you that God is nothing like the unjust judge. That God doesn't treat people with anger or angst. And that God is not someone I don't have a relationship with. And the widow, she's not like me because I know my Heavenly Father and I have a relationship with my Heavenly Father. And I don't have to always just weary Him or wear Him down. In fact, it's supposed to be just the opposite. That when we approach our Heavenly Father, it's not like approaching a mean old judge. And that's what turns our attention to Matthew chapter 6. And so turn there because Jesus is teaching about prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to get right to the threshold of that Lord's Prayer. Many people, many Bible students call it the Disciples Prayer. In Luke 11, by the way, you'll see a somewhat of a parallel passage um, where the disciples were praying with Jesus. And on this occasion, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching His disciples, probably not engaged in prayer with them. In Matthew 11, He's praying with His disciples, and there the disciples say to Him, Lord, teach us to pray. And almost the exact same template of prayer is given. In this instance, we find ourselves in the middle of a passage where Jesus is teaching his disciples. And remember from verse 1 of chapter 6 that this is part of a warning passage of doing our righteous deeds before men. And the first of three illustrations that Jesus gives is our almsgiving. Remember that? Don't give alms, verse 5, to be seen by others. And now we hit last week the first part of two parts on prayer where he says, and when you pray, don't do it out on the street corners. Notice in verse 5, to be seen by others. And then we just touched on verse 7, and let's pick it up for our text today and read the Lord's Prayer here. That is the Lord teaching our disciples to pray. So some think it should be called the disciples prayer, but you can give up on renaming this prayer. It is the Lord's prayer as we know it. And when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You'll notice as the ESV translates it, that they leave off the benediction. That part is, for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And we know that, we memorize that, and we sing that as well. It's well known. The reason the ESV leaves it out, and some other uh, modern translations might leave it out, is because some of the older, um, considered to be even more accurate manuscripts don't include that. And it is likely that that benedictory phrase was added sometime after. It doesn't contradict Scripture at all, and it makes for a very nice, neat, concluding statement on the Lord's Prayer, but it is um, likely that that was added later by some scribe. Perhaps So there's a question mark about whether that was in the autographs to begin with. And that's all that is. Well, this morning what I'd like us to do is, as we realize that Jesus is teaching about prayer, we need to keep in mind that the idea here is that this is, this is in the context of teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and it's taught so that we be careful as everything we've learned in chapter 5, this righteous life that's growing in us and the Beatitudes that we're living out, that we don't find ourselves in the very vulnerable and common human position of doing spiritual things for all the wrong reasons. And so there's the warning in 6.1. Don't do your acts of righteousness before men. And I'll give you three ways that we do it. First of all, our almsgiving to be seen by men and then praying to be be seen by men in the streets and those hypocrites, those Pharisees as they would find themselves in the most busy parts of the street and then the sound for prayer would go and they would pray out loud or make a big deal out of their prayer gestures so that the whole community could know and their audience was the people, their audience was not the God of heaven. And Jesus' response to that was, go get in your closet, get out of the streets, don't pray in public. He was not denouncing congregational prayer or group prayer. We have many examples of that in Scripture. But he was challenging us to examine our hearts that we pray with a pure motive. Just like giving with a pure motive. And the second part of his lesson on prayer then is this idea of heaping up empty phrases, verse 7, as the Gentiles do. Okay, so the reference to Gentiles there would be people who, who worship in other religions. The idea is that you could translate the word pagans, non-Jews, people who are not followers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these Gentiles do it. They're in their false religions. And one of the things that they do, and the word is hard to translate. There's some dispute over exactly what the text means in the Greek. For they think that they will be heard for their, it's translated in the, NS, in the, in the ESV, many words. In other translations, it might have the idea of babblings or repetitious phrases. And so in some of the cultic or Gentile faiths and Gentile religions of the day, they had prayer formulas and they would repeat them over and over and over again. Not unlike counting a rosary bead today, saying the same prayer over and over, where it becomes perfunctory. It becomes just something that is wrote. It is absolutely meaningless. It becomes something that we're just doing because we think it's a good luck charm. The idea here, I think, isn't just that repetitious phrases don't impress God. The idea of babblings, uh, some commentaries point out the idea that sometimes in our prayer we think that we're more spiritual if we slip into this mode where we're just making sounds instead of words. Like, I don't even know what to pray. So I begin to make meaningless sounds. And I would say pretty much Jesus is saying, knock that off too. 
that these babblings don't even make sense. That doesn't mean that when we don't know what to pray, that the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit doesn't go before God with groanings, as we pointed out last week. But that's the Holy Spirit groaning, not us. Okay, It doesn't mean that we don't groan in our spirit sometimes, but the idea of coming up with some kind of babblings is a worthless prayer effort. It also has the idea here of meaningless words or words without meaning as we pray them. The idea would be this, that we're in a situation where people can hear us praying, and so we begin to use words and vocabulary that sounds so spiritual. And the propitiation and whatever we're talking about here and on and on and the great depths of theology that we're praying and we're really not sure what these words mean, but we're pretty sure that everybody listening to our prayer thinks that we know what they mean and are very impressed with how we're praying. And you've basically reached your audience. It's meaningless. And so I think a good test for that is, is as you listen to yourself pray, if you're in a prayer group or at a, at a prayer table at a ladies' Bible study or in a living room at a home Bible study and you're praying together, that you hear yourself in public praying or even from the pulpit or even from the floor of the congregation of the assembly of the believers, that you hear yourself praying in a way that you never pray when you're praying in your prayer closet by yourself. See what I mean? And so there's, it's like this meaningless babble or repetitious words that you use. Some of us are prone to use repeated words over and over and over and over again. We've got to watch out for that a little bit, I think, based on this teaching. And we just say the same thing. Our Father, our Father, our Father, before we say everything or whatever. And so Jesus moves on and He wants to teach us. And so that's where He... He moves then and he says in verse 9, So pray like this. Pray like this. And that's when he, read, he says this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a great prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. One thing that I want you to make certain of this morning is that you understand that as Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and we learn from this, that he did not give us this prayer, that this is the prayer we are to pray all the time. That you need to think about this as we look at this prayer now as a scaffolding. You know what a scaffolding is? A framework. It's a framework and it is valuable. I'm not saying that it's wrong to recite this prayer in public. Or at a gathering, sometimes people do that in services or a funeral. It's not wrong to recite the Lord's Prayer. But I don't believe that Jesus gave us this particular exact wording, that it's something we are to memorize over and over. And in fact, it is curious, isn't it, and interesting, that in a passage where we're warned about vain repetitious or just over and over rote prayer, that we're given the Lord's Prayer, and that in our culture has very much become often a rote repetition said over and over by people who haven't a clue what it means. Or have no relationship with their Heavenly Father. So it is a scaffolding and the value of memorizing this prayer is, as you're going to see as we break it down uh, in a future message, is that as you break this down, it provides about eight different categories for prayer for us. So if you can keep the Lord's Prayer in mind, it will remind you of these things. 
And you can pray off of it as a model or a template for prayer. So what I want to do in the time we have remaining is I want to make some observations about the prayer. Observations about the Lord's Prayer. And then where we're going to end up using it as a model for ourselves is in, is in an application on how to pray. And a future message will be how to use the Lord's Prayer as a model for our own prayer life before our Heavenly Father. And I think you'll find it helpful and valuable. But for this morning, let's make some observations about the prayer. And just kind of break it down and understand a little bit what we're looking at. The first thing I want you to see, observation number one, is that it's symmetrical. It's symmetrical. Now, what I mean by symmetrical is that it has two matching parts. And you'll notice in this prayer here that there's two parts made up of three ingredients. Uh, The first part of the prayer has three parts of it that reference God and His glory. The second half of the prayer has three parts to it that reference us or mankind and His practical daily needs. Notice what it says. says He addresses our Father in heaven and He goes, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done. So He addresses His name and His kingdom and His will. There's three parts addressing God and His glory. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. We're longing for your presence. Your will be done. Three parts to that. And then the second half of it, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Three practical areas. Give us, forgive us, and lead us. And so there's three parts that apply to us. The first three parts are addressed to God. The second three parts are addressed to us. It's a little bit of a reminder of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? How that's broken down. The first four of the Ten Commandments address God and His glory. And the last six are more doing with horizontal relationships. It's interesting that way. So the first observation and just kind of an academic breakdown is that it's symmetrical. The second thing I want you to understand about this, that as we read this prayer and as we study it as a model or a framework for our prayer life, is to understand that it's radical. You say, well, what's so radical about the Lord's Prayer? It's very traditional is what you should say. No. To the audience that Jesus was speaking, you need to understand that they did not pray in a way where they addressed God as their Father. Now, in the Old Testament... Only 14 times is God addressed as Father. 14 times God is addressed as Father. And always it's in relationship to Israel, the father of a nation. It's never an individual or a personal relationship. When you get to the New Testament, over and over and over again, God is referred to as our Father. And it's always in an individual basis that I have a relationship with God and I can call Him Father. And in fact, Jesus modeled this in prayer. And if you combine in your, in your Gospels, the four Gospels, about 60 times when Jesus prayed, He referenced God as His Father. But if you were in the audience that day and we continually talk about the historical cultural context, you would have been a little bit shocked by the terminology that Jesus was using to teach us to pray. And you would say in your head something like this. Wait a minute. When Jesus says, pray like this, our father, which art in heaven, your immediate thought would have been, whoa, I've never heard that before. And it would have been a little bit radical. I want you to turn to uh, Galatians chapter 4 because I want you to see the third thing referenced here. 
is that it is personal. This prayer is very personal. Notice how he says, Our Father. Okay, it's congregational in that sense that we together corporately are saying our Father and the pronouns are all plural. In the last half of the prayer, the pronouns us, our, us, we, us, our, us, over and over. I think eight times there's pronouns that are plural. So it is congregational in that sense, but I also want you to see that this is very personal. When you address and begin into the Lord's Prayer and it says our Father, It's a very personal prayer. Look at Galatians chapter 4, and I want you to notice something. And you find a very parallel text in Romans chapter 8. And if you're interested in looking that up later, you can look up Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. For right now, let's just use Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. And I want to show you what I mean by this. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, the Apostle Paul writing the Galatian believers, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, now notice the language, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are are no longer a slave, a slave to sin or a slave to the law, but you are a son, and if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Really, if we could realize the full ramifications of that passage, we all probably should have jumped out of our chairs and started cheering. Do you realize what he's saying here? That in the fullness of time, God's plan was to complete the law by giving the one who kept the law, who came to the cross to die on our behalf. And he sent this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us or to set us free who were under this law, that we might move from a relationship of slavery to the law and slavery to sin into a relationship with God that is one of the full adult standing of the rights of a child born in that household. That's what this adoption is talking about. That we could be adopted into the family of God with the full rights of inheritance, with all of the equality that is in Christ. So be careful here a little bit, but in a way, it's right. And Hebrews references this as well. It's It's correct in a way to look at Jesus as our brother. Hebrews references him as our older brother. Now, I want to be very careful because there are some cults and false religions that will turn a sharp corner right here. And they will say that when you can enter into a relationship with God and you take on deity, you do not take on deity. All right. You never become a God and you never become equal with Jesus in the sense that he is always deity, but he is also always human. And so in the human part of Christ, we relate to him in his humanity and in his standing in the presence of God, we have equal standing. So all of the rights and privileges that Jesus has in the presence of God, his heavenly father, we have when we're adopted into the family. We get our name added to the list on the will that all of the inheritances are going to be spread out equally. And Jesus isn't going to get more than us. 
That's really hard for us to fathom a little bit, but here's the, here's the personal part of the Lord's Prayer. That when you say, Our Father, you're coming to Him as one who's been adopted into the family, and it's a very personal relationship that you have with Him. So when we study the Lord's Prayer, we see that it's got this symmetrical part to it, part of it referencing God's glory, part of it the practical part. It was radical to his audience in that they never referenced God as Father, but it's very personal in that we can call him Father because we've been adopted into his family. But I want to drive this point home even further, and with this we'll conclude. I want you to see that, that as we study the Lord's Prayer and we come to God as our Father which art in heaven, it's also conditional. It's conditional. I want you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and let me explain what I mean by this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 1, and I want you to see verse 12. John's Gospel and chapter 1. Okay, so as you turn there, let me finish my thought that was the main part of the main point that I wanted to drive home on the Galatians 4 passage. I got going on the adoption end, and what the adoption enables us to do is to cry out, did you notice what Paul wrote, Abba, Father. And the equivalent, that Abba is an Aramaic word, many of them in Jesus' day, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and they they communicated in Aramaic, And, and Abba was a word that they all would have understood, and it had the idea of a daddy. The idea, probably the most accurate way to translate Abba, Father, into English would be my dearest father. Now, we don't talk that way. We don't use the word father very much in direct address of our father, our earthly father. Sometimes we do. We'll say, Father, may I have the keys to the car? Most often we will say, hey, dad, right? Now, as we mature and as we grow older, if you still have your father living and maybe he's elderly and you're mature enough to appreciate what you have, you might sit down and write a note to your dad and you might address it at the beginning, my dearest father. And that has deep meaning, doesn't it? It's very personal. It's very intimate. That's the idea of the Lord's Prayer. Now that we've been adopted into the family of God and we have this co-equal access to God through the Son and Jesus... We can say to him, you are my dearest father. You are, the word would be papa, daddy, abba, father. It's a personal term. But I want you to see that it's a conditional phrase. It's conditional. Now, it's very commonly thought by people who are outside of Christ, outside of the church, that if they think of God, if they believe in a God, they believe that he's the father of all mankind. And in in the sense of the creator and creation, he is. And they will think, God is my Father. But notice what John 1.12 says. Notice what John is teaching. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who received, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of God, will of man, but of the will of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Listen, if you want to come to God and enter his presence in a very personal way, not like the mean, crusty old judge where I'm just going to keep punching him under his right eye until he finally gives me what he's want. That is absolutely not 
what we have in God. What we have in God, as Jesus teaches us to pray, is to say, say this, Papa, Daddy, dearest Father, this is your child coming to you, and I, am, I have a relationship with you. I am invited into your presence. I am welcome into your presence. But notice that not everybody is a child of God. To get to be a child of God, you have to believe in His name. Whose name? The one and only greatest name that was ever given, the name above all names, the name Jesus Christ. The one who went to the cross on our behalf, out of the love and kindness of His Heavenly Father, and as Jesus Himself surrendered His will to the will of the Father, He goes to the cross, and He takes the sin of the world, which included our sin, and He paid the price in the presence of a holy God, so that we did not have to pay the consequence of being sinners ourselves, so that by believing in His name, believing is faith. Listen. There's only one way to come to God, and that's through faith. You can't get to God through the church. You can't get to God through good works. You can't get to God anyway through ritualistic religion. You can get on your sailboat, and you can sail all around the world, and study your navel while you're doing it, and study all the world religions, and see if there's truth inside yourself, and see if you can find yourself, and see if there's a way to get to God. And I'm telling you, it's all utter emptiness. It's futility. There's only one way to get to God. Peter preached it in Acts chapter 4. And in verse 12, we, we quote this verse often. He said, For there is no other name given among men under heaven, whereby, listen to his words, you must be saved. And that name is the name of Jesus. It's incredible. In the end of that familiar chapter in John's Gospel in chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, after he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth, there's that act of faith, believeth in Him, should not perish, but then have everlasting life. At the end, he closes out the chapter and he says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son is dead already. You're in death. You're in darkness. The only way you become a child of God is by acknowledging your sinfulness in the presence of a holy God, recognizing that He alone paid the price through His Son on the cross, and that Jesus died for our sin. And you believe that. And you believe in that name. John 1.12, look what it says. But to all who did receive Him by faith, believing in His name, those He gave the right to become the children of God. Do you see what I mean by being conditional? Not just everybody walking around Walmart can look and say, God is my Father. But if you've recognized your sinfulness and you recognize that out of the love and kindness of God, He's made a way of salvation, and you've humbled your heart, see, only humble people can become children of God. Proud, arrogant people don't need Christ. Only humble, broken people. And you've acknowledged your sinfulness. And you believe in that name. What name? The name above all names. The one who went to the cross. The Lamb of God. Who took away the sin of the world. That name. That's it. So as we study the Lord's Prayer, it will do you no good if you're not a child of God. And we just needed to make that clear. Alright? So here it is. There's interesting content. 
symmetrical, it's radical, it wouldn't have been taught this way, it's very personal in that I can now say Abba Father, but I can only do that because number four, it's conditional, that is that I believe and I've trusted in Christ. And then you're going to find out that it's a very practical prayer. And out of this prayer, we realize a model, and we're going to learn from that model, but we'll stop right here this morning. How's your prayer life? Do you hear yourself sometimes praying in public in a way that you never pray in private? Knock it off. Don't pray like that. Examine your hearts. As a child of God, we should find it a very natural thing to want to speak to our Father. Amen? And we come before our Father and we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. We'll break down the rest of it from there. But my main concern this morning is that you examine your heart and that you recognize whether or not you're a child of God. Have you been where John calls us to be? That we've received this as a completed work and we believe in His name and we've become children of God. Not born of blood, not born of flesh, not born of our own will, but born of God, born again in Christ. Let's bow our heads, please. Will you examine your heart for just a minute? Can you honestly say that you can approach God and call Him your daddy, your father, Abba, Father? Because you've believed in the name of Jesus as your Savior? And that point of belief comes when you recognize your sinfulness has no cure other than what God has provided in Christ. And you admit that to God. You would say something like this in the privacy of your own mind. Dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner. You would have a sense of sorrow or grief for that. Not arrogance or haughtiness or self-righteousness. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. You would move on in your thinking and you would say, By faith, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he died for my sin. And then you would have have a conviction. You would be convinced that Jesus is the Christ. You would believe in your heart that it's true and that you would be convinced. You admit it. You believe it. You're convinced and you confess it as true. And you do all this by faith to God. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he died on the cross for me. And I confess, Lord, that I believe, I I commit to the belief that He rose again from the dead and that He is God. You become a child of God. You get adopted in, so you're an equal heir with Christ right then. I wonder if anybody in this moment, as I was communicating that, that you personally felt compelled to cry out to God in your own heart and you believe, you admit your sinfulness, you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you would confess Him as Lord and you would indicate, I would love to pray for you and know it, that you would just make eye contact with me and nod your head so that I can affirm, yes, that's me today, Pastor Van. I admit my sinfulness and I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Would you do that? Would you just make eye contact with me? I'm just going to sweep the audience. Thank you. And, And just make eye contact with me. Don't mess around, but if it's real, thank you. Just look at me and make eye contact. That you know that that you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's a few people making eye contact with me and just look at me. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. Yep, and you can put your head down. Several people. 
You're a child of God. You've been adopted in. You can go to your Father now. Father, for these three or four who've indicated just by uh, this raised head and nod of their head that they are with me, they're praying, they're open by faith to trust in you for their salvation and by faith are believing in, the, in Jesus as the Son of God and their Savior and they've become your children. Would you please just stir their hearts and, and show them that you love them and, and give them a sense of your love and your faithfulness and that you'll hold them in your hand. Grow them now in your word. Father, I just lift them up. Keep the evil one from discouraging them and give them a growing understanding of what it means to be a child of God. Father, thank you that we've been invited into your presence and we can call you Abba Father. And that we can have this kind of a relationship and we don't have to just wail away and try to weary you down to get your attention. But that you are a loving Heavenly Father and you have time for your children. Would you continue to teach us how to pray, Lord? Grow us in our faith. Help us not to grow weary and to lose heart. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.